Chapter Three of Oscar Wilde: The Story of an Unhappy Friendship by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: The hotel where Oscar Wilde was living, the Hotel Voltaire on the Quai Voltaire, was in those days in one of the most charming spots in Paris. That was before the government had ravished the quays on the left bank, felling the trees and chasing away booksellers and book hunters from their open air market the quai voltaire said alphonse daudet to me in the last conversation i had with him is the writer's true quarter in paris the happiest hours of my youth were spent there oscar wilde had a suite of rooms on the second floor with a fine view over the seine and of the louvre oh said he that is altogether immaterial except to the innkeeper who of course charges it in the bill a gentleman he added never looks out of the window it was a pity for the Huguenot, I said after a while, pointing to a certain window in the palace over the water, that Charles Ninth of the name did not remember that. In the daytime, when he was at work, he dressed in a white dressing gown fashioned after the monkish cowl that Balzac used to wear at his writing table. At that time he was modelling himself on Balzac. Besides the dressing gown, he had acquired an ivory cane with a head of turquoises turkish stones we used to call them which was a replica of the famous walking-stick which honore de balzac used to carry when love had transformed the recluse into a fop and he went a-wooing his polish wife la can de monsieur de balzac in short about which delphine gay was so very pleasant in her husband's gazette but he was not borrowing from the master these foibles of toilette alone I think that at that time he was striving in earnest to school himself in labour and production. He was sated with social success, and had fixed a high ambition to carve out for himself a great place in English letters, the place which he surely might have won had adversity come to him much earlier and in a different form. He had inspired himself with that passage in La Cousine Bette, in which Balzac declares that constant labour is the law of art, as it is the law of life, for art is creation idealised, and points to the fact that all great artists have been unresting workers, such as Voltaire in his study and Canova in his studio. Oscar Wilde was making a real effort to imitate in his industry and devotion to his art the great worker whose fopperies he played with. I do not think, however, that his resolution maintained itself, for I remember that, reading La Cousine Bette at the time, I came across a passage which follows close on the one in which Balzac lays down the law of art, which seems to me altogether to apply to my new friend. The passage where Balzac describes those semi-artists qui passent l'air vie à se parler. Yet, then and in later life he had the desire of industry if not the power of enforcing discipline of self he has often said to me regretfully after speaking of pleasures and triumphs i ought not to be doing this i ought to be putting black upon white black upon white the last time on which he said this to me was in his study in tite street where a notable article of furniture was carlyle's writing-table I doubt not that when he bought it, it was with the hope that the sight of it, recalling memories of titanic labour, might help his wavering resolution. In the great pathos of his life and death, I have few remembrances more pathetic than that of this dressing-gown and that writing-table, symbols of a self-confessed weakness, 
for were they not used as fetishes against idleness by one who knew only too well the real fetish to use amongst the books strewed about the room on the quai d'orsay were biographies of balzac books of the gossipy class full of personalia balzac in slippers and so forth textbooks with which to study apart on his writing-table which was decorated with flowers was for an ashtray a large porcelain bowl for the cigarette never left him a pile of sheets of costly paper covered with delicate penmanship showed that he had been working on the mantelpiece was a photogravure of that picture by puvis de chavannes which shows the nude meagre nut-breasted form of a young girl sitting on her unravelled shroud her eyes wide open in startled wonder a village graveyard indicated on a remote mountainside hope was it or a resurrection he gave me this engraving and on the mounting wrote a favourable device a paradox also rien ne vrai que le beau he told me in detail how it should be framed in grey with a narrow line of vermilion i noticed how he mouthed the word vermilion with the keen enjoyment of a man tasting imperial tokay who rolls the wine on his tongue and lingers with delight upon its perfumed gold for he always had a very evident sensuality for coloured and sonorous words also as is the case with many artists in letters there were words which caused him real physical annoyance those neologisms for instance which end in et when i think over his life i feel assured that the days when i first met him were the happiest days he lived he was free from material care he was in full physical and mental vigour and under the mild discipline which he had laid upon himself he was working at his best during the time that he spent at the hotel voltaire he finished his play the duchess of padua and wrote those two wonderful poems the harlot's house and the sphinx i was with him all the time that they were being elaborated i heard him fashion the lines often repeating as we walked abroad passages that had pleased him in their writing he was agreeably taken with the sound of the words am i not duchess here in padua from his play and he often quoted them i remember that for the sphinx he asked me for a rhyme in r for a lagging verse i can recall the accent with which he often repeated his request and chid me with the question why have you brought me no rhyme from passy it recurred to me when after his calamity first meeting him he said in a similar tone and with like insistence why have you brought me no poison from paris poison from paris poison from paris on the day when i had found nenophar for the wanting rhyme i was made as proud by his thanks as though i had achieved great things in literature we may have been precious and ridiculous on the occasion but i know that we were very much in earnest neither for him nor for me was there anything outside of literature we had desire for nothing but literary achievement it seemed the one thing to be coveted he was twenty-eight and i was twenty-two i had dressed for that first dinner to which he had invited me he had desired me to do so although we were to dine at a restaurant he had spent an hour that evening at a hairdresser's as was his daily custom and i found him curled and resplendent this delight in beautifying himself proceeded entirely from the most innocent joyousness of life 
it was a token of triumph in happy vitality and in some wise also the defiance of an artist to the moneyed bourgeoisie to show amazingly was to impress the philistines with due respect for letters ragged and pitiable no longer but curled and scented and in costly raiment we dined in luxury at foyot's in the rue des tournons and at the outset of the dinner we agreed that one should speak of yellow wine not white what our conversation was i have no recollection but i fancy that he must have launched some paradoxes in connection with the psychology of the second period which found interest and hence beauty in everything paradoxes which aroused my surliness for i remember rubbing my cigar end into the coffee in my saucer and asking him bluntly if he saw any beauty in the mess before him he said oh yes it makes quite an effective brown quite pleasantly but in his eyes there was just a glint of ill-humour at my implied doubt of his sincerity the warning ne touchez pas à la reine for the rest that was one of the very rare occasions during the whole course of our long amity in which even the shadow of a dissension fell between us indeed i can remember only one instance when he spoke to me with irritation and that was once at the cafe royal in london when inadvertently i spoiled a story he was telling by suggesting its denouement after the dinner at foyot's we went to the cafe in the latin quarter and afterwards we walked about paris our conversation was of literature only at one time in the night we were standing opposite notre dame admiring the wonderful sight of the cathedral under moonlight the monstrous gargoyles seemed affrighted by its clearness and the symbol suggested such reflections to the poet that i felt that conscience was very strong within him again we were walking past the dismantled palace of the tuileries and here he said too there is not there one little blackened stone which is not to me a chapter in the bible of democracy i left him at two o'clock in the morning at the door of his hotel and we were loath to part it was agreed between us that we were to be good friends and we fixed a meeting for the early morrow end of chapter 3